and we are live with our 14th episode of Absolute AppSec. I am joined this evening by my co-host, Seth Law. Seth? Hey, everybody. Welcome once again. And our special guest for tonight, Karthik Gakewad. And I hope I said that right. Uh, hey, man, you, you got it right. That's awesome. Yay. <laughs> Karthik, Karthik, can you uh, say hi to everybody? And hello, I'm Karthik, and I'm happy to be here on the on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for joining us. We've had some uh, scheduling issues, and and we've had to reschedule and postpone. So, like, we're really happy that we finally got this uh, locked down, and we're all here. So, uh, very exciting. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of back background on Karthik real quick, Karthik works on managed Kubernetes services at Oracle Cloud. Um, he has been a regular speaker in, you know, DevOps as well as security conferences. Um, I remember meeting Karthik first at, um, what is it, La uh, LastCon, so an OWASP conference out of Austin, Texas. Uh, that's where I first remember meeting you and uh, seeing you speak. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and also... Karthik, um, amongst the things we're going to talk about, his specialties in uh, a lot of it's in, in DevOps technologies and security. Um, you know, he organizes DevOps Days Austin, Container Days, and Cloud Austin. Um, I mean, you're heavily immersed in uh, the DevOps culture and community out there in Austin, Texas. I think that's a fair statement to make. Yeah, I, I really think once you go DevOps, you can go out uh, and being a part of the community. Um, the DevOps community in general is very, just very diverse um, and very broad. So once you start doing like, a you know, um, I think uh, Ernest Muller, James Wicked and I, we started doing um, Cloud Austin, which was just a local meetup. Um, and then that ballooned uh, into DevOps Days Austin and Container Days, which became conferences. Um, that we do typically year-round uh, in Austin, Texas. So it's kind of like, um, I think DevOps in general, um, there's a lot of um, you know aspects to it. Um, a lot of people say there's like plans and uh, culture automation, measurement sharing, lean, but the culture aspect of it is like, you know, getting people together and like talking about issues and problems. So that's kind of why we end up, you know, um, doing a lot of things uh, with the community in general. Yeah, I know there's a lot of tooling mm -hmm. um, that's specific to to DevOps, but I think that the it's it, you most hear you most commonly hear when people kind of describe DevOps. It's not about the tooling; it's about the oh, sorry, I gotta adjust this thing. It's about the uh, the culture. So, yeah. um, and I really yeah. think that's where the essence of just DevOps and the idea of DevOps kind of comes from. It's not. You can buy, you can, you know, look in the market and get a tool, but a tool is not going to fix a lot of culture problems. Uh, and that's something that kind of resonates over and over again um, in, you know, startups and smaller companies as well as enterprises. Yeah. And I mean, what would you say that the, uh, the culture, is it, a, is it a thing of openness? Is it a thing of, um, you know, of uh, being willing to sort of, like move quick hit and break things is it more of building um you know redundancy uh fit you know fail safe mechanisms or is it um i mean you hear microservices and serverless talked about which i know we're going to get into all that um but you know what what's sort of the to you what's sort of the um 
the attributes of the the culture um i look at it actually it's uh it's a weird it's a funny story a lot of folks kind of ask um how um uh, james ernest and i kind of do a lot of stuff together like present day and you know what our origin story is and our origin story actually comes from uh, a company we worked at together uh national instruments in austin so back in the day like, like this is like 11 years ago at this point but um, I started on like it was my first like real job and I was on the e-commerce team over there uh, just as a developer and I was writing applications and uh, Ernest and James, they they were like, I think Ernest was the web uh, operations manager uh, and James worked for him at the time. Um, and so like in our world, we were just going, we were, a lot of stuff was based in PLSQL and we were kind of going towards Java and the new, like the new way for our enterprise back in the day. Uh, and like, I had a lot of questions on, I was like, Hey, how do you, uh, like, what should I be doing in terms of like, I want to log all these things, but I don't want to set, don't want to set the logs on fire. Cause we used Splunk at the time. Uh, and I didn't want to like bombard Splunk with like a lot of debug logs and stuff like that. So, um, I kind of opened a conversation with, uh, with Ernest, uh, and Peiko actually, who's another, uh, of our friends who works as an agile admin, uh, on the agile admin blog, um, and so we started this conversation about logging and then they were really, um, they were really like taken aback because a lot of times developers and ops never really talk to each other about stuff. Uh, and I was like, I'm trying to fix this problem with my application. And I was trying to be a little proactive about that. And that kind of led to, you know, doing like wanting to do monitoring for the application and things like that and bring about more operational concerns. And they were working on different initiatives to try and bring you know, ops a little bit uh, up front. And I was trying to, you know, go into the ops world to try and make my application more resilient. So we kind of met in the middle. Uh, and ironically, like a few years, about five years in, um, or maybe like two and a half years in, we ended up writing a lot of uh, web products for NI. So we were in IT initially. And then when we went into the product side to write uh, SaaS based applications for the flagship application that NI had, which was LabVIEW. And so we were trying to figure out how to do like the whole SaaS thing. But this time around, we were all in one team. And so we were like a DevOps team uh, in, in our organization. So we had like six folks on the team, three of which were ops and three of them were devs. So it was really interesting because we would have these conversations about code, but we'd have like an ops person also kind of listening in and giving us, you know, recommendations and things we should be doing with respect to like connection pooling and stuff like that. Um, so it was kind of like an interesting, interesting time. And this is, you know, uh, uh, looking back, it's like seven years ago now uh, where we were kind of working together. Um, but to did me, you, I did have a question because I if, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the first talk I ever saw you give was on how to write a secure API or authentication mm -hmm. around API, something like did that come out of that work there specifically. Yeah, so I ended up writing the uh, authentication API for our uh, SaaS modules. Uh, and then there was a lot of things that we kind of learned as a team, like best practices that you want to think about uh, when you're writing, you know, uh, authentication, authorization, all of those blocks. Uh, and that's actually like followed me around in my career because uh, the first time I wrote it, I was like, wow, this, you know, you want to do things in, in the, using these specific patterns. Uh, and that, that was the talk that I'd given, I think at LastCon, um, which is, yeah, the LastCon conference uh, many years ago. But 
I, yeah, I was sitting in the front row watching. Yeah, yeah I remember <laughs> that. And it's funny because, like, I didn't know your name. I just knew it was CK Tricky. I'm like, yeah, I don't know who that CK Tricky guy is, but he's really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I remember watching and being like, this shit is what people need to hear because, um, I, we st- I mean, I still get that question. Like, how do you, what, like, it's very generic. Like, well, it's either how do you test an API or most often, like, how do you make a secure API? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that is still a thing that's, and this was, I think you gave the talk, I don't know what year, 2013, maybe something like that. 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. Yeah. I mean, it's still five years later. Mm-hmm. People still are confused. Yeah. And, and part of it, I think goes back. That's a really interesting question because um, you can almost take out the word um, API and put that in X and people would like, ask how do I make X more secure? Like you heard that with containers, like how do I make my containers all secure? How do I make my Kubernetes all secure? And so in some ways I feel like that's the wrong question uh, that's being asked. And instead it's like you think about it, you know, more proactively and maybe we should like think about rephrasing that question to being just something else. And so which is ends up being a little bit more productive maybe. But the million dollar questions, I don't know what the actual question is. <laughs> You just know what the answer is? Is that, you know, is this a 42 style situation? Yeah. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, you know, problem we always run into. I, I, I mean, we, we all get that question, you know, mm-hmm. it seems to be the reason that we're all employed, you know, for one reason or another, right? But. Yeah, and the, on, more on the API front, like it is, um, programmers love like freedom and tooling. So a lot of people, when they write REST APIs, you end up having like many ways to solve like one single problem. Yeah, it's a nightmare on the security standpoint because you're like, well, how do you even go about you know locking this down or making sure like all these things conform to something specific? Uh, and it's really like too easy for a developer to go and like. Um, you know, write one, spe- one specific endpoint and forget to put authentication or something on there, and you know you're you're exposed, and that's why we get uh, a lot of you know a lot of hacks where people are like, oh, you know, I found this like random endpoint here which I didn't think was supposed to be be alive or it had no op on it, and you know I found all this data. Yeah, I mean that's that's why we always search for those broken access control vulnerabilities, right? I mean, I, I think about doing like code reviews, and those are. I, I seem to find those all the time. Like, I mean, it's the restful endpoints, it's things like Node or like, I, I like to call them the hipster languages, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm old apparently. But, you know, the, the new languages that that allow this this routing mechanism to be built into the, the code itself. And it's very easy to forget your authorization, you know, decorators or tags or how you're doing it. And there's no one standard. Mm-hmm. for implementing that, right? Node does it different than Django, than Rails, and, you know, somebody somebody uses middleware to handle it in one situation, and then another, it's built in. So it's, it, yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's, you know, what I'm getting at, so. Um, but, you know, it, along those lines, right, you know, like I haven't seen this last con talk, you know, maybe give us a short rundown of what it was that you went through on that, because it, it obviously sounds like it's still relevant if you're still getting the question, if we're still getting it, you know, wh- what was that? Um, 
you don't have to d- dig into specifics. Just you know, give us a short overview of what it was, and then we'll make people go dig it up. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to think through like the stuff I saw, and uh, from what I remember, um, we talked about a lot of um, at the time we were moving to the cloud, so a lot of people, you know, ended up using the web server to you know uh, cache tokens and stuff like that, and used uh, mechanisms mechanisms that you know were, were provided by. Uh, let's say uh, web logic or something like that to do authentication. But um, part of the talk kind of focused on okay, if you're going to if you are not going to use capabilities that were provided by the um, uh, by the actual web server, uh, what would you do? So that uh, some of it focused on okay, you know, here's an example of you know authentication broken down into REST out services. So you might have a login endpoint. Uh, you might pass your credentials to that login endpoint. Get a token which expires at X amount of time, and use those that specific token with your call for your other APIs. And then the rest of it kind of focused on okay, um, here's how like you have your user credentials. Um, you know here, what what are different things you would need to do in order to save those uh, securely in a database. You know um, don't use just like uh, ran hashing for like hashing a password. Well, first of all, hash your passwords, yeah. uh, but also do that in a secure manner. Like don't use just a uh, random number or whatever, um, but you know, use decrypt or something like that. Uh, and talked about also like storing stuff in, um, I think we had stored our things in like MySQL or whatever, but if, uh, think about it from a hacker perspective, it gets access to one single table. Uh, you know, you don't want everything, uh, even if it, things are hashed, you don't want them to get access to all of that. So maybe store your salts in a different place and different tables or different databases uh, just to make things, you know, a lot more difficult from a, like if you have one thing that's exposed, it's not everything. So it kind of went into detail on, you know, just ideas for things that you should do or think about when you're building uh, a REST out service that does, you know, authentication, authorization, all that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does sound very relevant, right? You know. Today, with you know the, the way that the cloud has gone and the way that we're building things, I mean, nowadays you can depend on Amazon for half of that or the cloud provider to do the the authentication and authorization for you. Yep. But at the same, yeah, it's I mean, it sounds like early microservices security talk, right? You know? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, and did we lose Ken? We may have lost Ken. <laughs> I don't know. He just paused. So. Um, 11 years ago, since Karthik had mentioned 11 years ago, uh, uh, or longer, you know, essentially you had a, a, like a data center and you'd have some bare metal hardware, um, and you run your application, which probably hogs a fair amount of resources on that server. Um, but you've got, uh, developers who write code, ops people that make that work and eat up those resources and use that, uh, box essentially, um, others who might work on like the networking standpoint. So all that stuff's divided up and, um, it's, you know, <clears throat> one application, one database, typically, um, kind of a relationship, even if that's like scaled out, it's, it's still that kind of relationship. And now what we're talking about is as things have shifted, um, and I know we're going to get into this, but, um, n- then you started seeing maybe more of like APIs where you've got, um, instead of just it being HTML and everything on like this one, you know, in this one app, we'll say code base. Now you have maybe multiple 
code bases, multiple applications. You've got APIs, you've got front-end JavaScript that are its own thing that then communicates and makes calls off to a separate application, which is just an API, which Karthik talked about securing. And then to further like watch the evolution, you're talking about, you've got, um, and I think we should get into this, which is uh, now we're going away from uh, even writing your own fully baked API application to like serverless, where there are just functions that do one thing such as like AWS's Lambda. Um, so you send a request to it and it does one interaction on whatever it has access to. It could be S3, it could be a database, could be whatever, SMS or SNS to send off messages, whatever the case is, you don't know. Um, and then uh, and then you're using something like, cause Seth, had, you had just mentioned like using um, cloud providers authentication, right? So like API gateway will tied in with Cognito, whatever other services are out there. I, not even familiar with. I know there's a lot out there and Karthik, I'm sure you're going to talk to us about some of that, but just giving people kind of an idea of that evolution who may not have this whole um, background on it. Uh, hopefully that's succinct enough. Uh, you guys have anything to add to that? I mean, I'm sure you have some stuff to add to that Karthik. Yeah, I think the, it's interesting because um, we're at this point right now where, uh, and working at Oracle, this is something that, I see quite a lot. I find that enterprises are just kind of realizing, hey, we need uh, we need this container thing, and we need um, people. Have also, been talking a lot about config management, um, which kind of came before. Like there was DevOps, and DevOps kind of came at the same time as config management, and then you had containers, um, and then you know uh, most recently you've had the serverless movement, which has been around. Like um, I guess there's been a lot of buzz about that. Like last two years, uh, probably, a uh, little give or take. But um, a lot of folks have kind of been, you know, going between, um, like, should I use containers or and Kubernetes, or should I go directly to, to serverless? Like, what paradigm should I be learning uh, right now? And it feels like a lot of the, uh, from a startup perspective, uh, it does seem like a lot of folks are kind of moving more towards, uh, you know, uh, just using serverless and serverless architectures, because I think the the mind shift is completely different from, you know, building applications where you're building applications and you were just packaging them in a different way. And that's what containers kind of gave you. Uh, and then when you add Kubernetes on top of that, that helps you like orchestrate your whole um, application and, and microservices in a, in a more organized way. But then when you kind of flip completely to, um, uh, to serverless, it's almost like, well, we're kind of thinking about everything from an async process uh, perspective and everything is kind of like a job queue or something like that. Uh, and then you have your front end kind of interacting with your application, to, um, with your, you know, your backend applications uh, from a serverless standpoint. So it, 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 it does feel like there's this, um, there's this like shift right now where we're going from just like, uh, especially in the enterprise where we're going from a single, here's my application deployed on, you know, the stack and it's very clean. And then they're like, well, we put them in containers now, but it's still like the same stuff. And okay, now you're telling me I need to break this up into multiple containers. Or are you telling me that I need to like rip everything apart and make it like <laughs> this serverless thing? So I, I do think there's some amount of confusion. Um, and realistically, um, it's it's hard to tell. Uh, like when I think when Docker first came out uh, in 20, 2012, 2013, around that time, people like latched onto it really quickly, both dev and ops, 
because devs were like, hey, this is a way that I can communicate with the operations point, point of view, and uh, I know exactly how to like give them something to deploy. Because that used to be a hard problem. You know, you'd be like, <laughs> here's, your, yeah, here's source control, and there you go, right? Um, your problem now, buddy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but containers kind of introduced like, that clean packaging platform. Um, but then serverless, I think, helps more from a development developer perspective where it's like, uh, you kind of like think of your application and, you know, uh, to a certain extent, the ops focus shifts a little bit more to, you know, monitoring and uh, logging, making sure the application is, uh, you know, resolving to a certain uptime and things like that. But you're not actually like managing your app um, to begin with. And I think that is kind of a hard, um, a hard like learning curve from an ops pr perspective for an enterprise, which might just kind of be, you know, stepping into that whole paradigm. So, so, I mean, is that, I was, you know, I'm going to, uh, sorry, Seth. Um, Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to ask, because I was, I mean, that was before you even answered, before you, before I even asked the question, you started answering it, which was, you know, you've got access to this huge uh, community. Is mm -hmm. that how you're seeing, like, to, to what extent are devs involved in, like, like software developers uh, involved in the, yeah. The deployment process and it sounds like i mean like to get real granular like would a dev in most environments be modifying their docker file or would that be like ops doing that or you know how far down the the, the pipeline into deployment do developers typically that you see tend to tend to get yeah it's that's a great question um some of the work at when when I worked at Stack Engine, which was the company that that got acquired into Oracle, um, like we used to write uh, a product that was basically um, an orchestrator. So you have Docker containers, and then you could kind of tell, hey, I want this application to run on this node, and kind of like load balance and do all of that stuff. Uh, and we actually ended up talking to a lot of customers um, that wanted to you know go into containers a hundred percent. And so it was really interesting, like the, the smaller shops um, that, you know, had the, had, you know, the, I think um, a lot of folks kind of say it's like the, the 10 to one ratio where there are 10 developers to uh, one ops person. Um, a lot of, in the, in the smaller startups, there used to be a lot of like developers kind of championing, hey, we should be using containers. So, and from that perspective, I think they would go down pretty deep to almost the, they would have uh, the Docker file kind of written, um, and then they were like, "Okay, we have this. We had the images stored. Uh, we have the images stored in, you know, an image repository. Now we need to figure out how to deploy that." And then that's kind of where, um, you know, that that shift would go into ops. But in the larger organizations that had, uh, you know, an ops team or ops teams that were trying to support developing uh, development teams, like in those shops, we saw a lot more of. Okay, so um, I'm in the ops organization, and I want to, uh, you know, make my development lifecycle for my developers a little bit easier. So they would kind of like have uh, sample Docker files for you know Java applications or you know Ruby applications or whatever, uh, and then have samples of that kind of scaled out using their infrastructure, and then kind of pitch that backwards to developers. Be like, hey, look, this is a Ruby app, you know, running on you know for uh, for machines or whatever, and it's load balanced, and 
um, you know, how would you model your specific application to do something like this? Um, so it kind of been, went both ways. Uh, and that's why I think it's like a great kind of meeting in, in the center point. Um, and we, um, one of the guys I work with uh, at Oracle and at Stack Engine, like he was our ops guy, but he would, he was like the guy that I needed to be talking to, to um, make sure that my Docker file was, uh, you know, up to date. Uh, making sure it was minimized or minified and things like that. And uh, that's something as developers, like we just sometimes start with, you know, oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Golang guy, so I'll start, you know, from Golang in my Docker file. But really, you don't want to do that. You kind of want to, you know, have the smallest smallest attack area or surface attack area. Uh, and a lot of times, like, you, you know, that's where kind of security comes in. That's where kind of operations comes in to actually just build a more, uh, stable application and just a more secure application in general. So if you, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's good. It's, it's good for us to, the reason I ask is because, you know, sometimes um, it's sort of like making assumptions on how all this looks and we don't, I mean, I don't have access to the pool of people that you do. So that's a good, uh, that's, that's kind of the background on, on why I asked that. Mm -hmm. um, to get a feel for kind of how that was, how that was, um, trending, I should say. Um, now there was, uh, another piece that I wanted to definitely get into and, and ask you about on that note. Like if you, um, let's say you're, cause this, this comes up by the way, like fairly often, mm -hmm. which is I am not, um, a huge security team. I'm a, I'm a small shop and what can I do today? Because I've got I've got developers, not ops people. I've got developers in this environment deploying containers. Uh, what can I do to keep my environment? Let's say they're deploying containers. They're using Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. um, what can they do? How can they get started in in securing their their setup? Essentially, like automating it, getting getting yeah, like automating as much as they can. Yeah, and. That's that's a great question, and we actually get that uh, quite a bit uh, right now. Um, and I think the first um, the first thing to do, either way, is making sure that there's some kind of pipeline. Um, so you know you, your your code lives in source control. Whenever you push your code to source control, there's some kind of thing, some kind of build or whatever that's kicked off, whether that's Jenkins, or Circle CI, or uh, you know, whatever, or Travis or whatever, like there's something that kicks it off. Um, that essentially like build, ends up building your containers for you. Uh, and I think that's a great place for security to kind of plug in. Um, I think the CNCF or Cloud Native uh, Computing Foundation, um, they've actually done a lot of work, like bringing the whole community, community together. Uh, and one of the interesting things about just CNCF in general is... Um, it's more um, when it was formed, like it was a lot of developers. I, actually, I think it was like split of developers and operations, but like over time it's grown into like a really good like developer security operations kind of community. Um, and they have this like landscape, the CNCF landscape, if you Google that, um, it'll kind of show you like the different pieces uh, in it. Uh, and there's um there's a part in there where like um, where they talk about just securing images in general. So if you're in a large shop, for example, um, one thing you probably want to do a lot 
lot of is making sure that the images that your uh, development teams are building, um, you actually go scan them on, on a semi-regular basis. Uh, Docker, Docker Hub, if you're an enterprise customer, does that automatically for you, and you know they'll they'll look for uh, CVC scans and stuff like that, or CVC uh, issues and things like that. But um, if you don't use Docker Hub and you're doing something locally, um, do they? Do you know if they? Because um, I don't actually know this off the top of my head. Do they? Do they look through your Docker file? Like, because I'm assuming there's CVEs on the like they're look they're CVEs on the images you're downloading. But do they look at? Like if you're doing anything insecure in terms of your um, like line by line instructions on Docker files, that's a good. I think they do because um, I think they like if you end up adding like if you start from a Ruby base and end up adding whatever in there, they'll look for like specific uh, patterns or whatever. Um, so it's kind of specific to whatever image you end up building, um, and you know they end up scanning that that specific image. Ah, okay. Um, and so if there's a CVE based on that, they'll be, they'll be like, oh, this is, you know, I, I got something weird in here. So I'll make sure that I go and fix that. So that that's there. Um, well, so what, like roll back a tiny bit, right, with the scanning that you're talking about, just so that we make sure that everybody understands, um, you know, what sort of things are you, because you mentioned CVEs, that they're checking for CVEs in that scan. So what is it exactly that they're looking for in Docker versus something like a vulnerability scan or like, uh, you know, a network scan, yeah. you know, just kind of what that is, what that looks like. I think mostly um, it's it's looking for like uh, scat, um, what's it called? Uh, static analysis. So like it'll scan for like any kind of static vulnerabilities and things like that. Um, one of the good things to kind of, one of the tools that you can look for is uh, called Clair, uh, C-L-A-I-R. Uh, and that came from, uh, the folks at CoreOS, and so they kind of uh, Docker does it automatically, but you can also get Clear run it locally in your in your own ecosystem, and that looks for like your uh, does like a static analysis of uh, your containers uh, or your images basically, and tells you. So that. it's scanning and looking for out of date packages mm -hmm. and you know vulnerabilities within that yep. framework, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, in, in application security, when we, we when we we stock about start talking static analysis, I start thinking of, you know, fortify and you know, static level analysis of the code. But this is actually static level analysis of the operating system, right? Yep. Operating system, and then whatever else you've like installed on there. So if you put something, um, you know, insecure or whatever, uh, in in that specific container which has the OS and everything else in there, it'll actually look for that too. Okay, cool. Sorry, I didn't mean to de derail you too much, but we do okay. have kind of a different understanding, right? I, I mean, and we, we've got to understand that, right? From a DevOps perspective, I need to understand what you guys are looking at as opposed to what I look at from an AppSec perspective, because those th those two things have to match up, right? Yep. If you're running static analysis. I don't want to make sure, I want to make sure that your static analysis covers something different than mine. We're not like duplicating effort, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then there's um, one of the projects that I was kind of looking at most recently. Uh, there's a company called uh, Aquasec uh, mm -hmm. in the Kubernetes world, and they kind of do a lot of um, lot of work from a security perspective. But they actually released a tool called Kubebench recently, which uh, I, I took a quick look at, and that thing actually um, runs through your your Kubernetes install and makes sure that it um, um, it uh, adheres to specific like security uh, principles and best practices. 
uh, for your Kubernetes installation. Um, and that's really important because if you look at, you know, how to install Kubernetes, there's like many, many, many ways that you can do that. So it kind of gives, it kind of looks through like your Kubernetes install, make sure that you're kind of doing all the right things that you need to. And if you're not, it'll kind of give you an error um, or, you know, give you some information up front. Um, and I think that's super useful because a lot of people are kind of, you know, doing a Kubernetes install just YOLO. And so that helps out from that perspective. Yeah. It, it doesn't that implement the CI security or it's checking the CI security benchmark, right? The CIS benchmark. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that, uh, and then there's, I think there's a, there's a lot of other uh, interesting things to you. Like from a image perspective, um, we, or the CNCF ended up um, adding like the tough framework um, in their, it's like a framework for like secure scanning um, that everybody kind of corresponds to. And then Notary, I think, implements that. So Notary is like the tool that you would use to you know, scan your images uh, from a, that's like the CNCF blessed uh, implementation of it. But, you know, Claire is kind of similar to that. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of others. But a couple of companies do kind of, uh, if you're looking for solutions in that space, Aquasec, Black Duck, uh, uh, Anchor, uh, Anchor is like A-N-C-H-O-R-E, I believe. All of those guys are kind of doing a lot of uh, interesting security security related things with respect with respect to containers. And I've linked Aquasec, Claire, Black Duck, um, the uh, CNCF, yeah, CNCF, yeah. So I put those links inside the live chat, so they'll be available for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it really does feel like the wild west right now in the container space, right? You're looking at Docker containers and everybody's got a solution. You know, I, I didn't go to RSA this year and not too broken up about it, but <laughs> um, like I mean, cloud security was a thing last year when I went, right? But definitely this year would have been, that would have been the main like, well, cloud, I, should, I shouldn't say cloud, I should say container security or Docker security, right? Knowing whether or not you're vulnerable there, right? It, it seems like there's a whole bunch of growth. There's a lot of companies in that space right now. So I, I expect there'll be some con consolidation and people start to suck up those tools and, you know, combine them with your Qualys or whatever, right? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I went to KubeCon in December of last year and um, I went to the show floor and there were, uh, I think there were about 4,000 people who went to the conference, but the show floor was pretty packed with, a lot of vendors, um, and it's it it's kind of evolved um, because when Docker first came out, there were a lot of vendors trying to provide solutions for just containers in general. But but then there was confusion on you know like what would kind of win from an orchestration standpoint. So there was a lot of questions whether you know we Docker, Docker Swarm, Kubernetes, Mesos, and all of that. But that's kind of evolved into people wanting the community kind of wanting to use Kubernetes as you know, your container orchestration platform or container management platform. Uh, and so now I think a lot of vendors are kind of trying to integrate with, hey, how do I make, um, people are going to build applications on top of Kubernetes, you know, how do we kind of build like a stronger kind of, uh, stronger tooling on top of that, or, you know, from a security standpoint, stronger defense uh, and stuff like that uh, from a Kubernetes standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? You know, like it's kind of the natural evolution of the different 
technologies, you know, for lack of a better overarching term, right? Or, you know, aspects or, you know, development frameworks, I guess, right? However, we present these applications to the public. Sure. Um, yeah, and I think like the, just Kubernetes in general, uh, when we first start, well, when I first started using this a couple of years ago now, I was like, I really liked upfront that it told you, hey, if you have something that's a secret, like, you know, you have MySQL password or something like that, put that into a Kubernetes secret. Uh, and that was something that they baked in from like version like 0.3 or something like that. Like it was like very early on that they were like, oh, you know, people have these things that need to are, you know, need to be safe. And so it like, let's introduce this concept of secrets. And a lot of people kind of use uh, uh, HashiCorp's, HashiCorp's vault uh, yeah. as a secret implementation behind the scenes. Um, so like a lot of people kind of use that alongside Kubernetes um, to kind of store their secrets and get that and integrate that into the, uh, into your container pipelines. But uh, it's good, it's good to know that there's the idea of security is not like a last kind of thing. And it's, you know, brought up, brought up front. Um, but that being said, like secrets, Kubernetes secrets by default, they're only like, um, if you can go and figure out what they are, they're just basically encoded. So it's not like something magical, but uh, at least, um, you know, at, at rest, like if you can get into the container, you can still find out what it is, but at least there's like effort being put into it up front. Oh, I didn't know that about the base 64 piece. Okay, well, okay, that's something to add to our GitHub searches, right? Or yeah. for our container analysis. <laughs> so, and I mean, is that the main reason that you see people using those third-party solutions like HashiCorp Vault is just the, the level of security around those Kubernetes secrets? Or is that just an implementation of Kubernetes, like how you tell it how to define those? No, I think like Vault actually ends up being uh, a lot more, like a lot more robust from a security standpoint. Okay. Than, you know, just using like plain Jane Kubernetes secrets. Um, but it's, uh, and I think Kelsey Hightower had a presentation um, maybe last year or sometime where he actually integrated Vault as like the secret provider for Kubernetes. I haven't actually like gone and like played with it, but I know uh, there are a lot of companies that kind of do that uh, from, uh, hey, we have these things that are sensitive. We could, you know, store them somewhere. Okay, we'll, we'll use Vault. To actually store store those and then you know build an API on top of that to kind of push that into Kubernetes. Mm, yep. Yep. Interesting. Um, yeah. Sorry, Ken. Oh, I was going to mention what Ken Toller had said. You know, him mentioning that you know it's uh, Vault's a great uh, kind of stepping stone into moving from a legacy app to a uh, to containers, I'm guessing he's saying, you know, get your legacy apps on Vault, and then it's uh, easier to um, to make that migration. That is a, that is a great idea. You know, I'd never I never thought of it that way because I don't do a lot of like legacy migration kind of stuff. But that's like, yeah, that would be like your first step that you want to do before you do like YOLO with containers or whatever you want to call it. Go crazy, go nuts with you crazy kids with your with your containers. <laughs> yeah. No, hipster, hipster languages and containers. Gosh. <laughs> hey, Seth, so I was going to ask you, when you said hipster languages, do you consider Go to be a hipster language? Go? Yeah, like Golang. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I was going to mention on that. What question was that, right? You know? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> does everyone uh, have beards that programs in GoLang? Yes, right. You know, it's. <laughs> I've been to a, a to go meetups before, and uh, Seth, it doesn't feel very. It feels very. Uh, it feels more like a. I don't mean this in a rude way, but it feels more like a meeting of the chess club or the mathletes than it does hipster I, group. I, I, I guess hipster, I should say modern languages. I don't know, you know, and, and anything that's not your, your, your classic, you know, Java and .NET from back in the day. Is Java 9 a hipster language? <laughs> I don't even want to get into that. Is, is it really a language, right? You know, is it, yeah. No, the, I've, uh, um, I've actually been doing Go a couple, not not a couple, how many years has it been? Like four years now, probably. And then it it kind of grew on me because um, when I first started out, I was like, it's kind of hard to get my head wrapped around it because I used to be, um, Ed and I, we always did just everything in Java uh, and some stuff in C Sharp. Uh, and then went to Ruby for a little while, went to Python for a little while, and then we ended up settling on Go um, just because... Um, like the build process is really simple. Like you end yeah. up being just, you know, binary uh, and shipping that off and you can kind of run it wherever. Um, so that's kind of like what brought me to it. And it's kind of grown on me a lot uh, over time. Um, no, it's, yeah, it's like, I mean, my, my hipster language definition is pretty loosey goosey, right? Uh, it's more like the, the modern language paradigm, I should say, right? So you could argue that, you know, like .NET Core and some of those other, you know, new technologies from the old state, like companies is, are, are hipster as well, right? Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, and it's not a knock on them whatsoever, right? Hey. I, I haven't I haven't written like a full-blown Java application in years. So I, you know, I, I, I you know, they're much easier to use, right? So. You know, what's funny, Karthik, is that, um, I don't remember when this was, but it was, it was probably within the last year and a half or so I was, uh, I was like doing a go code review and I'm like, what the, what the heck, like what resources out there and guess whose presentation showed up. Uh, so I, I was, I was looking at your, uh, your material. And I'm like, Oh, Karthik wrote this. That's cool. Cause I, I mean, there wasn't like, there's not, a, there wasn't a ton like, uh, of go security related stuff. I was going to ask you, um, are you, so when you say you're using it, Go, are you using Go for like web specific, um, like handling web requests and whatnot, or is it in a different capacity? No, I mean, um, I work on the managed Kubernetes team at Oracle. So like Kubernetes itself, like all of that stuff is written in Go containers, like Docker, all that stuff is written in Go. So um, when I first started, it was just basically writing web apps. Uh, and then um, I, um, before, before Stack Engine, I worked at Signal Sciences and like, we kind of ended up, uh, that's where I first started like to learn Go from, from a web application standpoint. Um, but mostly it's been, um, like some of it's been like writing the, uh, APIs in Go and like all of the backend processing and all that. Um, and then I also dabbled a little bit with like writing a front end in Go, but then I was like, ah, oh, you know, you probably want to use like a more modern thing. Uh, it, you can do it, but it's, it doesn't make it, you'd have to use uh, jQuery or something like that with it, which I don't think web developers like that. But uh, it's been a lot of just like writing APIs and, um, you know, backend kind of stuff using Go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the build process, that deployability makes it pretty, yeah, attractive, right? Yep. To developers, you know, paired with a modern React front end or, Mm -hmm. Angular front end, and you're off and running, right? 
I'll tell you from a code review standpoint, Go is way easier than um, Ruby. Like, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of abstraction as all of you, anybody who's ever dealt with Ruby, which is all of us. So, on so this. any, I mean, any language though is easier than Ruby. To be fair, right? That's. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's, I've seen shit shows in all kinds of languages. Except so for PHP, I, I, I won't like. I'm not no, PHP it. is amazing. Yeah, no problems there. Fucking great. Um, yeah, no, uh, um, <laughs> shit. Um, yeah, no, with, um, I can't even keep a straight face like talking about PH. Damn you, Seth. Um, what was I saying? Oh, Go. Yeah, Go is, uh, command Go is so much like cleaner and easier for me to read. I'm sure it's like that for, I have to imagine it's like that for everybody because it's just, it's so succinct and there's not like, just not like a bunch of craziness and like metaprogramming style kind of craziness or even just like different abstractions. Like what you, it's very easy to follow. It's very like what you see is like what you see and that's how it's going to behave. And it's not a ton of tracing like um, I've seen with other uh, languages and frameworks. So thumbs yeah. up for me so far. Unless you use channels and then it can get a little bit hairy because you're like, what happened here? And so channels are a little bit more confusing. Um, but I think that's also gives you like the power uh, to do like multi-threaded kind of things as well. So that's that's useful from that perspective. But the first time I looked at it, I was like, "What? How is this working?" Nah, like, if, if you're doing that, you can you should go back to a true hipster Erlang Elixir language, right? Mm -hmm. if you need channels and multi-threading. That's the yeah. But I mean, there's uh, uh, you know, there's never issues with concurrency and with. Uh... Uh, running things and running multiple threads and never any issues there, right? So, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's always weird given like it can always go weird depending, like not just one language, right? Like Go is not just the only, but yeah, I mean, so far I've I've enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't written a ton of it though. Like, um, no, well, really. I'm seeing a lot of security tooling and, and maybe you're seeing the same thing, right? With Kubernetes and all these DevOps tools that are written in Go, I'm seeing a lot of security people move that direction as well and actually take their, you know, it, it used to be that Python was the go-to for all security tools, but that's not the case anymore. I'm seeing quite a bit of Go being used to write those link, those tools nowadays as well. So. Yeah, and, and I think part of that comes back to uh, a lot of DevOps folks, um, like operations, uh, hardcore operations folks, have ended up moving from Python to Go. And I think part of that has to do with just like, hey, it's like so easy to build it. And it's also like really easy to deploy it as well. Uh, and so I've, we, we've noticed a lot of shift in the DevOps community with that. And I think it kind of makes sense from a security perspective as well, because it's like um, from you know, I'm kind of naive about it, but I, I do feel like a lot of security folks spend time building tools and then they need to, you know, get traction um, with those tools, you know, inside your inside your different environments or your uh, at your place of work. And developers are like, I don't, I don't want to install like Python on my machine or whatever to do, uh, to do all the stuff. And, you know, I think devs in general get frustrated pretty quickly um, or maybe as technologists, we get frustrated pretty quickly uh, and just kind of focus on the problem at hand. And if you can't solve it pretty quickly, we kind of move on to something else. And Go really helps with that because it's like, oh, I just need to, here's how you, here's the syntax that I need to actually run the application. And, you know, there it is running. Uh, 
Um, and so that's, that's been, that's been, I think one of the biggest things about it that's been useful to like bring different communities together. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, really Python, you just need like pip install, right? That's, that's the only thing. And it'll all work after that. right? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Side rant about fucking Python. They call it global variables. And I just want to be very clear after this last week of misery and torture dealing with Python, um, they are not called, they should not be called global, global variables. They're not really global variables. Um, that's just my little rant of this little session about Python. I don't know. Have, have you, either of you dealt with global variables as they call it in Python? Well, yeah, but they're all scoped. So. Right. Which they're, they're, isn't they're, global. It's not global. Right. <laughs> Oh yeah, that that I didn't know that up until. Come on, that that's your that, that's your what PHP developer coming out, right? You know, you want true global variables. You have that in Go. What's that? You have that in Go. There's there's no if it's if it's outside your package, it's global. <laughs> thank thank goodness for some sanity. Yeah, no, I mean that. That was um that was a bit of my last week uh here and there not week, eating up on some nonsense like that. So at least you had to rant. the right version of Python, unlike me. <laughs> like I was like, why does this not work? And I was like, Oh why, why does this print statement keep <laughs> 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 Oh, that's right. It's Python three and not Python two. Everything's a function. You need them parentheses. Um, yeah. Anyway, so so language aside, let, let's go back to DevOps a little bit, right? Um, we always kind of we, we we gear kind of a section of this to somebody getting into the industry or getting into it. I mean, we've kind of talked about the security tools that are available, but if someone was to come to you and ask, "Hey, I need to learn about DevOps and containers and you know Kubernetes," where would you recommend that they start? You know. Number one, how did you do it? But what would you recommend? What resources or websites or people would you recommend? Sure, um, that's a that's a large question. But I think in just from a basic like DevOps perspective, um, it's useful to kind of go to like a DevOps days. Um, mm -hmm. DevOps days is like a two day conference. Uh, if you look at devopsdays.org, uh, it'll kind of it's in literally every city in the world uh, ha has it at some point in time. And I think I did a talk on this last year and we had done DevOps days was in like, a, it had happened in 165 cities or something like that by the end of last year. Um, so that's really popular uh, in the DevOps community. And that's kind of like, um, if like the first time I went to it, um, which was in 2012 in Austin, um, that helped, that empowered me to realize, oh, there's really like, there's a lot of people that are solving similar problems to what I'm solving in my large enterprise. So I had access uh, to folks doing similar things and like hearing about problems that people were uh, kind of, you know, working on. So that's, that's a great resource. Um, there's the DevOps handbook. Uh, if for the folks that like to uh, you know, uh, read different things. Uh, that's by like Gene Kim and uh, all of the DevOps uh, Illuminati like kind of pulled together to write that book, uh, which is awesome. And it's a, it's a great, um, um, you know, just a great book to read. Uh, there's also, if you're trying to convince your management 
like, hey, we should uh, really get off the ops bandwagon, bandwagon and, you know, start thinking about, you know, working interactively with our developers and do this DevOps thing. Um, Gene Kim wrote this book called The Phoenix Project, which is, uh, I always say, like, you should read it, but it's always, like, good to convince, like, your management. So, like, give your management that book, uh, and that I think that's a good idea. Um, in terms of, like, courses and stuff, there's, there's some stuff uh, out there. Like, I think the DevOps Institute has, like, a DevOps course that you can, I don't know if it's online or whether you have to actually go somewhere to take it, but there's, there's that. Um, for folks that are, are on, like, LinkedIn Learning or lynda.com, um, James Wicked and Ernest Muller, they have, like, a course on just intro DevOps. Uh, it's a pretty long course. I think it's, like, three hours or something like that, but they kind of go, like, head to toe. Uh, and um, Ernest actually wrote, um, if you Google, like, what is DevOps, he has, like, the number two most popular uh, blog article on LinkedIn or on uh, on Google uh, on the Agile admin site. And so he actually kind of, like, succinct, succinctified, if that's a word, uh, what, what he thought about DevOps from, like, an operational st standpoint. So that's kind of, like, a good place to... You know, start about so a lot of those are general, general kind of things. Um, if you're a developer, uh, or if you're an ops person, that if you're a developer who wants to do more operationsy kind of things, um, I think it's good to you know look at how like specific tooling works. I don't know what like it, it'll depend. Um, you know, if your company they use Chef or they use Puppet or something like that. Uh, you know, take a look at the cookbooks because like it's just a Ruby cookbook. It's just code. So you can go and like you know play with it and try and do different things. Maybe not like your production cookbook, but you know just go and run a cookbook, and you'll kind of understand. Okay, well, this is how this stuff that stuff works. Uh, if you're an ops person going the other way, where you're trying to like uh, do more, you know, writing infrastructure as code, you know, pick up something like Chef or Docker or you know one of those kind of toolings to kind of you know push yourself upwards. Uh, closer to, towards developers because, like DevOps is in, it's all in that middle, uh, and I think that's that's a good place to go. Um, from a Docker Kubernetes standpoint, there's like a lot of just uh, Docker 101 uh, courses out there. Uh, in fact, um, Mike, Rob, and I, um, we Oracle has this uh, conference called Oracle Code uh, that you know goes around every year, and so we ended up giving like a Docker 101 um, lab. So that's like a good resource uh, for, and it's like, if you've already done like Docker Hello World kind of stuff, you know, you probably don't need to worry about it, but uh, it just basically helps people get started with Docker. Uh, Kubernetes, uh, from that standpoint, um, there's a free course uh, on like intro to Kubernetes. Um, I'll have to get, get you guys the link uh, I forget the name of the author, but that's a that's a really good course. Kubernetes uh, on the Kubernetes website also has like a lot of just um, material where I think CNCF and Kubernetes, the communities have realized that people are kind of swarming towards it now. And Kubernetes docs, they're good, but they're good for specific problems. And when you're getting started, you don't know what the problem you're actually trying to solve is. Yeah. Um, so there's there's they're they're adding a lot more stuff um, on Linda. I actually gave um, I did a class where I did like an intro to Kubernetes as well, 
Um, so if you're a lender or a comp subscriber, feel free to check that out. Um, and what else I, do I think is important from all that? can't think of anything else top of my head, but if I do, I know where to post it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all that's helpful. We, we posted some of the links in the chat as you were talking through that. Um, but definitely, you know, anything that, that will help people just kind of understand where the pieces fit, especially even coming from the security side and, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, I'm approaching a DevOps team. What do I need to know? Right. You know, like, like I, like we understand the tooling and how things are kind of being pushed out. But, um, my next question to you was going to be where you, where do you see security fitting in there? Right. And specifically application security. Um, a lot of the tools that I see for DevOps environments from a security perspective are very focused on the operating system mm -hmm. and the, you know, and rightfully so, right? You know, your it's your infrastructure as code. You've got to make sure that that's up to date and there's no vulnerabilities there. But where do you see security fitting into the DevOps environment? Um, um, so like one thing I've noticed which has gotten a lot of traction internally at Oracle is we do um, the security team. Uh, it's Oracle is a large company, but like one of their teams we work with is a DevOps team, but they also have security folks embedded in the DevOps team. So um, they kind of, they started with a platform to do um, just basic container testing. Uh, so we like testing out the application and that thing runs, you know, in the monitoring code and whatnot. So, you know, they, they run a suite of tests. The other thing they ended up doing is also adding security to that. So running security tests when you end up pushing your images. And that got a lot of traction from a, from a developer standpoint, uh, because when you're building a pipeline um, and you do your uh, security or you do your, um, you build, and then you're doing your tests, those tests can not just be, you know, unit tests or integration tests for your, code, but you can also have like security tests sitting in there. And I think that kind of pushes the, I think like one thing, um, when I first looked at my first ever security scan result, um, like many years ago, I was like, I don't even know how to read this thing. And I was really scared because it was, it was like a thick stack. And I was like, wow, there's a, there's a lot of, and it was not even a huge application, but it's like a thick stack. Uh, of things to kind of, to kind of read through, and I sat and read read through the whole thing, and then I realized, oh, this is not that bad. This is like it's categorized, but it was just like fear because I'm like, wow, this is a big booklet to kind of look at, and I think. Um, but if I'd seen that from a oh, you know, I ran this uh, this tool ran this specific test, and here's here's what's wrong uh, with the actual code base, I can go fix that pretty quickly, uh, and I think that that helps a lot from a just a development perspective um, so that you, you have eyes on it a lot quicker than like, okay, waiting, waiting a long time until the application is released. Uh, and then, you know, you're kind of doing security scanning or whatever uh, after that. But um, Kubernetes actually has this thing called conformance tests, okay. uh, which is like, it's a large set of tests that kind of run through the Kubernetes infrastructure. Uh, and a lot of, um, you know, companies that ho either host Kubernetes or, you're running Kubernetes internally, they, uh, they run, uh, they always like run through those tests to make sure that they conform to uh, a specific Kubernetes specification. Uh, and that runs through 
I don't, I don't know if they have like a security specific security section for that, but they do it for like all the different, like, um, different layers in Kubernetes, like storage and networking and things like that. So I think that's, um, if you're so, trying so those, those Kubernetes tests, those actually run against your software that you're pushing out. That's what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. It runs against like your Kubernetes infrastructure. So it'll go and like, for example, it'll go and build like pods and, um, you know, deployments and, uh, and whatnot, and make sure that the storage layer that you're using underneath, um, actually is like doing what a Kubernetes expects it to do. So you're not kind of baking like a random Kubernetes thing up front, but, um, the gist of it is like all of those things kind of are in the, in the testing layer. And I think if you put security as a part of the pipeline, um, I think you end up getting a lot more people looking at it like way, way ahead. And the development, um, in the development, uh, what's it called? Like life cycle yeah. later on. Uh, and I think that's where like stuff like, um, there's an open source project like gauntlet and stuff like that. Like all of those things kind of sit, sit in there where it's like, Oh no, I ran my, uh, I ran my unit tests. I ran my integration tests. I ran the security tests, everything passed. Okay. Let's we're we feel more confident in releasing this, yeah. uh, go along. No, it, it, like that, that, that's 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 it, it's encouraging to hear you say that from the DevOps side because that's one thing that I've been preaching for a while is that the like security testers, right? Application security testers specifically are just glorified QA testers, right? And realistically, they shouldn't be running it after something goes to production. They should be sitting right there in the middle with those integration tests, right? And that's where it makes the most sense, and you know. It's just a security payload. It's no. It's not really any different from the other QA payloads that are being thrown at the application. And you're looking for edge cases, right? They're, they're the, all of the those, like you know, secure or like application testing methodologies that you learned in QA are very applicable to security testing. But if anything, the the security testers are they're pretty poor at actually following through with test plans and test cases like the like the QA engineers are. So I, I'm just glad to hear that somebody else is thinking along those same same lines because that makes the most sense to me mm -hmm. as an ex-developer is that's where I would like to see it go, right? So. And I, I think that's how we win. Like, you know, in the end, it's not, it's not about like security person. It's not about the ops person. It's really not about the developer. It's like whatever we put out as a, as a company or product, like that thing has to be good and that we're putting out to people. And sometimes, you know, in large, larger organizations, we forget that because, you know, we're, we have our goals that we have to hit by the end of the year and things like that. But like, if we're all working together to build, you know, better software, um, that's really how we end up like winning and not having, uh, you know, random vulnerability issues or like just different things in, out in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's ensuring that the software is up to a certain standard, whether that's availability, whether that's security, whether it's you know processing, what have you, right? But w you know, without all those pieces in there, it just it won't happen. You know, it, I mean, you go back to your initial, you know, the initial security test report that you read. It was probably some PDF. Yep. You know, not not even bug reports. You know, and and we still see that. That's still the kind of the industry standard. Right, like when I do an application assessment, they don't ask. Like I always offer, hey, guess what? Let me into your bug tracker. Like I'll, I'll create issues for you and just dump them straight into there. But they, it's still this, oh well, 
we want that separate. So we're going to get this X, Y, and Z because we've got a compliance check yep. that we have to that we have to hit. And yeah, it, it, it's kind of disheartening on that front because it feels like security is so tied up with compliance right now, rather than it being a feature of the application or a part of the the culture of developing code, right? Yeah, and and I think from a from dev perspective, in the end, like to us, it's a bug. It's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, this this just has a different tag on it, right? Correct. Yeah, and it's like I think um, when we when we found stuff before, you know, when we ran a security scan, we were like, oh, you know what? I didn't even like think about that. Yeah, I should go fix that thing. And so, like, I think from a dev kind of fixing a problem, it's just a problem that we end up fixing. But sometimes there's you know, process and things of like that that you have to add um, add to it, which becomes like this larger and more scary thing in some ways. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times that I'd be like, hey, guess what? You know, I'll be talking to a developer. I'm like, hey, I found SQL injection. And they're like, where? And I'm like, well, it was on this page. Oh, yeah, no, no, I know that service. Yeah, I, that needs to be fixed, right? And I'm like, so, yeah. okay, so my, my whole test was just a reminder to you to go fix the thing that you knew about, right? The, I mean, that's the favorite thing to look for in code reviews from a security perspective is, hey, let's look at the comments first because that's going to point me at this isn't done. I didn't implement authorization here or to-dos. You know, it's yeah, to-dos are the best. Just search for to-dos if that's a li- code review life hack. Yeah, code review life hack. To-do, implement authorization here. Yeah. That's, cool. that's funny, guys. Yeah. You know what? Um, I had not thought of it that way from a, from a dev perspective, but that's true. Because like we put notes to ourselves and it's like, oh yeah, that's like the easiest thing to kind of search for if you have access to the source code. It's like, I know what's not done. And then, yeah. You know, that, that, that's why we always tell developers, right? Your best security review is not like black box, it's white box, because we can go in and look and see, okay, number one, everything that the code's doing, but number two, all the developer notes that as, you know, what's coming or what kind of flaws are still kind of exist in there. So. Or the git commit message that says, I don't know why this won't work, but this <laughs> crappy thing that's from a security perspective, it, this works. So fuck it. Like, push. <laughs> you, know, you see those. So co- comments and git history. Comments and git history. Yep, exactly. Um, well, let's see. We've been going for over an hour, guys. Um, Ken, what, what haven't we gotten to on your list there? You know, I think we've gotten to because uh, we, you know, we kind of uh, organically got into the uh, to Karthik's sort of background. Um, I guess the only thing you know really left is to, um, you know, I know Karthik, you have DevOps days coming up here, um, May third through May fourth. Uh, is there anything you know you wanted to promote anywhere you're going to be speaking anywhere? Uh, you know, anything that people should know about anything that you've got going on? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm actually speaking at DevOps Days uh, this year. I'm giving a lightning talk on uh, it's a random topic. Um, so I'm going to be a new dad uh, in a few weeks. Congrats. Thanks, man. Woo-hoo. And uh, it's going to be like my first kid. And so we've been, my wife and I have been looking at just like everything that has to do with being like a new parent. And so my talk, it's a lightning talk about the parallels between DevOps and DevOps. 
<laughs> all the things that are similar and like different stuff. So I'm gonna have try and have some fun with that. And um, my biggest fear is like I hope uh, the kid doesn't happen before DevOps days. But I'm pretty stoked to be giving that talk. Um, and yeah. then I think, yeah, go ahead. No, no, yeah. I mean, that's prepare to not sleep for a while. Hope you know. Hopefully, it's not as bad as some folks have it easier. But yeah, prepare for it. It's gonna be fun, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, and then probably like once I so I'll be like kind of MIA for a little bit, and then resurface and going back into doing like we've been doing a lot of work on the Kubernetes front, uh, getting like the managed service out, and uh, it's, I think it's going to GA um, uh, in a couple of weeks. If I'm not yeah, like a couple of weeks from now. So um, once we since we have all a service built out, I'd actually be able to like go and talk about it more. Um, so I'll probably like hit up some conferences later on, but. Right now, it's just uh, DevOps days, and we're doing DevOps days, Austin, a little bit differently. Where um, it's DevOps days has become more of like a conference where you have speakers kind of like presenting stuff to you, uh, and then some sessions where you're kind of like interacting with your peers. But we're going to try a different approach uh, this year where people are going to come to the conference and kind of like vote on, vote on what talks they want to hear, and also spend more time like building community versus, you know, like somebody preaching to you about, Hey, this is what you should be doing versus kind of like asking questions that you really want to be talking about uh, upfront and spending more time doing that. Um, Cause I think conferences, you go to like big conferences and you're like, man, like you just kind of sit in your spot and like listen to someone talk to you about stuff. And then you might take notes about like things you look up later, but you know, we all get busy and we don't actually end up doing that. Um, so hopefully this organic kind of setting is a little better. Um, it's an experiment that we're trying at least. Yeah, let us know how that goes. Because, I, I mean, there, there's a DevOps days in Salt Lake City here where I'm at. But that's only a couple weeks after Austin. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I've met the organizer there before. And, it's an, you know, it's definitely a – it sells out, right? Every year it sells out here for sure, right? There's just so many people that are interested in it. But, I, but I'd be interested in hearing just how that – how that approach goes, right? Um, you know, we've been having a lot of talks about that with some of the security conferences that I'm involved in. Is hey, guess what? You know, how do we get away from the the whole idea that speakers are, you know, we have to have a speaker and then everybody just sits and listens, um, and people don't take away as much when they do that. There's not as much hands-on. There's not as much interaction as there is. You know, even lightning talks, like you're saying, where you're getting people to sign up and talk about something they're interested in. Are a little more conducive to actual conversation rather than just being talked at. Yeah, I think the one thing I really like about LastCon, uh, Lone Star Application Security that we do in town is like the the number of people like in your they do multi tracks, so there's like multiple talks going on at the same time, and so you end up unless you're on like the main stage where you have like a lot of folks, the the speaker to speaky ratio is you know uh manageable so like you can kind of stop and like take questions at the, at the time you're giving it the talk and whatnot and so you you kind of build relationships and that's kind of like it's it's funny because that's how i met ken is like Ken had you know he said something during the talk and like that resonated with me uh at the time and i was like oh yeah you know like ken, like i know who ken is and i can kind of relate to him uh and it it, it just builds like your um you know, your, your set of people that you're like, Hey, I jive with these people really well. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, I love coming down there. I was at DevOps Days Austin last year. Um, but LastCon, every every time I miss LastCon, I'm so sad. Like it's such you're it's what you said. It's such a great people. Like I, you know, I've spoken there a few times, but when, you know, it's like the speaking. It's like just getting that out of the way because everybody that's speaking there is, I want to hear them speak. Like I'm, you know, it's like you have to do your obligatory, like you have to do your slide prep and you do your talk. But then this is one of those conferences where like, you're like, I just want to get that out of the way. And then I want to go look, or or I want to, you know, listen to all of these great speakers and, you know, talk to these people. And also, cause you get that opportunity, especially with the, you know, I'm getting down in the weeds here on this, but like just the, the, like the table setups in the, the big room that they always, have their the uh the norris conference center like it it's conducive to everybody just sort of like sitting down eating lunch together doing whatever having coffee and uh just having great conversations so it's like one of those ones where you definitely go to learn and uh meet great people yeah well maybe and DevOps Days Austin, that venue is amazing I, I saw that it's at the same place uh the uh royal texas memorial stadium that's a very cool venue. So it's uh, it's crazy to look out and you're like looking at the football line or the 50 yard line uh, from the from the conference uh, center. So it's pretty awesome. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I was I was a booth babe last year. Um, no joke. So uh, um, I got to see some of the football players. They were doing practice, like like down in the um, because we you know we were loading some stuff up to bring up the elevator and like the like the staff sort of back sure. room kind of stuff and like you got to see them just you know coming out of practice and they're all the football players just walking through. that was pretty cool mm-hmm. so cool good i mean now the only other thing on our list was the the rsa stuff um i mean that's not necessarily kartik related i think um <laughs> oh yeah one thing one thing i uh we should we should talk about it because like i looked over some of the stuff um uh, on my Twitter feed, and my Twitter feed is like a lot of DevOps people, developers, and like some security folks. Um, but I did end up reading a bunch of stuff about like DevSecOps uh, on there. Uh, there was a lot of, I guess there was also a DevSecOps day, which is which is great. Uh, and then shout out to James Wicked's talk um, that he gave on serverless and serverless security, and he kind of like unfolds that whole like paradigm uh, in in a way that's I think is interesting from not just a developer perspective, but also from a security perspective. So I think that's a great uh, slide to kind of take a look at. Wait, so quick question. I'm seeing Dev DevSecOps days at RSAC twenty at RSA conference twenty eighteen, but um is that so is that like was that just for RSA or is that DevSecOps day? Is that like a, a like a set of conferences that are gonna be like DevOps days that are going around, you know, like around the country or world? I uh I think the I I believe it's going to be like a set of conferences that happens around uh kind of like DevOps days. Um like Mark Miller uh will probably know a lot more. Uh, on that, but I think it's kind of we're trying. I think they're trying to build like the same kind of, um, you know, community aspect of things that DevOps has, but also bring like security into the into the picture uh, in there. But um, I, I believe there was like a DevSecOps day like after RSA um, last week or something. If I'm not wrong. 
Yeah, I saw yeah. one on April 16th, but I don't I you mentioning it was the first time. Seth, had you had you heard about this before? No, I hadn't. Uh, well, I was just googling it now like I, I had heard that it had gone on, but Yeah, I mean it just said 2018, right? That there was a DevSecOps days at RSAC, so I got some decent speakers. Awesome. Hmm. Oh, Derek Weeks is in there. Sweet. Yeah. James yeah. Wicket. I see James. Yeah. Big fan of James Wicket. Yeah. You know. And not just because he's really tall. <laughs> not just because he's really tall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know that what you all do there in organizing and, and bringing people together, it's amazing, as well as the uh the like basically free security information you've given everyone, including the, tonight. We appreciate it. Um, you know, before we, before we, uh, you know, go tonight, what, is there anything like you, um, you want to leave people with, um, you know, in terms of like, uh, where things are going or anything you want to kind of, kind of put on people's mind before you, we, uh, sign off. Hmm. I do think that, um, Kubernetes and is going to be like a thing that's going to last for a long time. Um, so if companies uh, or folks listening are kind of, you know, thinking whether Kubernetes is a good idea or not, I think there's going to be like a large following for that uh, going forward. So from a security point of view to kind of think through like, what are, what are things that, you know, we need to fortify Kubernetes, uh, application Kubernetes containers, et cetera. Um, also, if you're, you know, kind of a startup, you probably are thinking to going towards um, more of, um, what's it called? Um, uh, why am I totally blanking on this? Um, what's the event thing called? Probably because it's late and we had you on here, uh, yeah. on here late. Our apologies. <laughs> hey, no worries. Um, man, it's, it's, not, it's not Kubernetes, but it's like the new, new thing. The new uh. thing. It's is it like Kubernetes? Oh, I'm sorry, serverless. I don't know. Oh, serverless. Yeah. It, but, uh, yeah. If you're like a smaller startup company, you probably like will be going serverless just because you know it's easy to manage and stuff like that. Like things we talked about. Um, there are even lesser security patterns uh, to follow over there. So if, if there's somebody like doing uh, you know active security kind of related work, like talk talk more about it, uh, or you know come hang out on the podcast. Um, cause you know, those are things I think people are actively struggling with. Um, but in general, um, you know, DevOps kind of built a lot of hey, working together between devs and ops. And I'm hoping, you know, DevSecOps kind of does the same thing where it's like, you know, we're kind of all solving the same problem, uh, building better applications, uh, as we go along. So let's do it together. Well, I did want to thank you for joining us tonight and again, being flexible with all the rescheduling and sharing all this great information with us and especially your you know, two weeks out, possibly yeah. two weeks out. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell your significant other. Thank you as well. Right? Yes. Sure. No, um, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah. Yeah, no. And we'll, I mean, <clears throat> definitely want to do it again. Um, and I'd love to, to maybe have, you know, one or two other folks and make it kind of like a round table around, uh, DevSecOps and, or De DevOps security, whatever you want to call it. I don't, yeah. I'm not, I'm not cool enough to know all the names, but, um, uh, 
did want to mention a few things before we sign out. Um, uh, one is next week, we're, uh, May 1st, we're going to have um, uh, Kevin Cody back on. I think this time we're going to talk more about tooling. I want to say mobile tooling. Mobile tooling, yeah. Yeah, mobile security tooling, testing. Um, if you would like an invite to the Slack in Karthik, uh, I'll make sure I get, uh, you on that, uh, Slack apologies for not doing that before the podcast. Um, uh, so if you want an invitation to our Slack, uh, send an email to absoluteappsec at gmail.com, as well as if you have any, uh, suggestions or any, uh, questions, anything, any speaker suggestions, anything you want to, you want to hear or anything like that. Um, Seth, anything to add to any of this? No, just, uh, you know, make sure and check the website. We will post the, you know, the link to the YouTube channel and the latest video and also the, the audio um, on the website itself. And, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll keep moving on that as well and making that more dynamic with what we're doing on the pod podcast side. But, you know, as of now, that's everything that I've got. But again, appreciate it, Karthik. Thanks for coming on. Yes, thank you. We really do uh, appreciate you sharing your time and, and info with us and our knowledge with us. Yeah. You bet, guys. It was my pleasure. Okay. Awesome. Right. Well, um, all right. I'll sign us off. Uh, see everyone next Tuesday. Uh, pro- time is flexible, but we'll see you next. Uh, we'll see you next Tuesday evening. Uh, thanks again for joining us. All right. Bye, everybody. See you guys later. Later.